Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mavra Nasir, a senior consultant here at Back Bay. Prior to joining Back Bay, Mavra received her PhD at my doctoral alma mater, Dartmouth, where she completed her PhD in quantitative biomedical science with a research focused in non-invasive infectious disease diagnostics using mass spec and machine learning. Mavra recently had a thought piece published in Biopharma Dealmakers, an imprint of Nature Review's drug discovery, where she outlined the current state of play in the very hot field of protein degradation, and we'll be chatting about her article here today. You can find a link to that article through our website, bblsa.com slash insights events, or link through by clicking the Insights and Podcast tab at the top of our homepage. So with that ad over, Mavra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for And congratulations me. once again on the article. Well, congrats to you, too. You're one of the co-authors. Uh, uh, allegedly, you did all the work. So, <laughs> so, j- j- <laughs> so <laughs> jumping into that, maybe we can just start, you know, for those uh, of our listeners who have, who have heard about uh, targeted protein degradation, TPD, ProTax, all the sort of alphabet soup associated with the field, you can maybe take a step back and, and give us a little primer on what is targeted protein degradation, what are the approaches, uh, and give us a lay of the land before diving in deeper. Yeah, happy to. So targeted protein degradation, or, or TPD, um, is a very promising therapeutic modality and it really has the potential to um, destroy or eliminate disease-causing proteins. Um, you know, over the last two decades, we've seen TPD successfully transition from a bench experiment to the industry, and a lot of it has been fueled by um, some really heavy private and public sector investment that we'll talk about, um, which has Come, it has come to a point where last I checked in February this year, they were around 20 degraders in the clinic. Um, and when I say degraders, you know, we're primarily talking about two kinds of degraders. So there's two flavors that we've seen, Protex or proteolysis targeting chimeras and molecular glues. Um, and both these uh, degraders, and I'll define them in a bit, they primarily harness the ubiquitin proteasome pathway, or the UPS. And um, this pathway is a, a key pathway that is used by um, the cells in our body to dispose you know, damaged or unwanted proteins. So it's really a trash disposal <laughs> used by our cellular machinery. And um, the, proce- the process by which this trash disposal works is really um, orchestrated by these enzymes, E1, E2, E3 ligase, and the E3 ligase is the most important, really, which really helps kind of tag any unwanted protein with a molecule called ubiquitin. And at this point, I have to say, and Pete, you should have known, this is the only reason I'm doing this, (laughs) ubiquitin um, is poetically also called the molecular kiss of death. So if any protein is, you know, tagged with it, it's going to be killed, really, in the cell. Um, and so a lot of that work 
was done by, um, you know, these three scientists, Dr. Dr. Aaron, Dr. Irvin Rose, Dr. Aaron Shikanawar, I might be butchering his name, and Dr. Avram Hersko, who kind of discovered the molecule, discovered the pathway, won the Nobel Prize, um, and really kind of laid the foundation for using that pathway as a therapeutic strategy. So that work was done in 1980s, fast forward to mm. 2001, you know, um, Dr. Craig Cruz from Yale and um, Dr. Ray DeShees from um, Caltech, um, they published on Protax. So the first time we heard the name Protax, which leveraged this pathway. So what is a Protax? Um, honestly, the best way to think about it is think of a dumbbell. You have um, on one mm -hmm. side, um, a ligand that binds that E3 ligase. There's mm -hmm. a linker in between. And then mm -hmm. on the other side, you have a protein that binds um, a ligand that binds the protein you want to degrade. So gotcha. that kind of dumbbell in between just brings the E3 ligase and mm -hmm. the protein you want to degrade just in close proximity. And once that kind of formation happens, you have the ubiquitin, the kiss of death, Mm -hmm. added to the protein you wanted to create. Mm -hmm. And so that just triggers the, the process of, um, you know, destroy the protein. It's taken to the proteasome, the trash disposal, and gets de mm -hmm. destroyed. Okay. So that's, that's Protax. I've always uh, used the uh, garbage, garbage disposal, garbage truck uh, uh, analogy, but uh, uh, you definitely took it to a darker realm with the uh, kiss, of, kiss of death. Um, analogy. Uh, so I, I guess to summarize, right, if you think about advanced modalities and therapeutics, thinking about traditional antibodies where you're sort of using, um, you know, a biologic to, you know, sequester an interaction or to stop a cell signaling cascade at the cell surface, it may not destroy the protein or destroy the cell it's just blocking the function this is actually you know taking the entire um target of choice or target of interest out of play entirely rather than merely blocking a specific function mm -hmm. yeah so this is ablation you're destroying it completely you know you're just eliminating any um function that protein might do whether it's um related to the way it binds with other um, proteins in the cell or mm -hmm. um, the way it acts on a receptor. You're just destroying the whole functionality um, mm -hmm. of the protein because it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess going off script a little bit, what's the advantage of an approach like this versus an antibody? Is it you're just trying to remove any chance that this could be interacting um, you know, along the pathway? Of, of interest or is it hitting specific targets that may be difficult to uh, drug with a traditional antibody approach? Yeah, so potentially and theoretically both. I think a good example is, and I'm pulling some materials so I'm, I can code it correctly, IREC4 is a, is a molecule of interest that historically has been pretty hard mm. to drug um, mm. and chimera therapeutics is developing a degrader for it. And the reason it has been hard to drug in the past has been that it has scaffolding functions 
that you cannot mm. eliminate, but just by just trying to inhibit it. So gotcha. Chimera's lead program, which interestingly is the only program in the clinic for a non-oncology mm -hmm. indication is for IRAC4 and trying to completely destroy it. Um, and an antibody couldn't potentially do it, um, at least if, if it doesn't bind that sc scaffolding part. The other gotcha. part is obviously, um, the other, other advantage, potential advantage is, um, and that's where some of the low hanging fruit when it comes to um, the, the initial wave of products that have been developed. So Arvinus's lead program is for an androgen receptor degrader and anti-AR therapies have, are approved, they're available, they're billion dollar drugs, but patients develop um, resistance to them over time. Gotcha. And versus with a degrader, you know, if you can eliminate it, you decrease eliminate or complete. It. Yeah, <laughs> there's no chance to develop uh, resistance yeah. to it. So yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, so you know, mentioning a couple of those companies, I think, is a good chance to sort of transition. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what has been sort of the state of play from biopharma investment in this space so far. Yeah, and this is what we cover, you know, mostly in, in our uh, uh, piece in, in uh, Biopharma Dealmakers in the Nature. So what we've really seen in the last couple of years and focusing specifically from 2016 to Feb 2022, the latter is important because between the time we finished <laughs> working and today, there have been five deals that have been announced and they're yeah. not in that paper. Um, you know, there have been, you know, around 40, 43 deals. And I think at a high level, we saw a pretty good surge in 2020 um, and not a, you know, significant find from our end that was primarily driven by Arvinus releasing initial safety and efficacy data on their ProTac program. So that kind of really drove a surge of investment in the field. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen high level, you know, earlier 2020, 2019, almost all the deals were um, you know, discovery stage for ProTax, focus on ProTax um, solely, um, multi-million dollar deals, deals, upwards to a billion dollars in total value. Um, but after 2020, we've seen a significant interest from, from uh, biopharma in uh, primarily two things. One, mm -hmm. in molecular glues. So I'll explain what those are in a bit. Um, systematically identifying and developing molecular glues. And then mm -hmm. second, a key interest in um, using machine learning um, and chemical proteomics, also known as chemoproteomics, um, to identify you know, novel ligands um, to targets um, or ligands for E3 ligases that have not been previously identified. So just expanding mm -hmm. that repertoire of druggable targets. Yeah. Moving from sort of biopharma licensing an M&A, where have VC uh, been active in the space? So as is true to their DNA, they've already moved away from Protax. <laughs> they are more <laughs> interested in, and UPS, I should say, you know, they're already looking at what's next in the sense mm -hmm. they're more interested in, okay, beyond, besides the ubiquitin proteasome pathway, what other pathways are there that we, you know, companies or drug developers could leverage to eliminate proteins. You know, not all trash disposal systems are created equally. 
that mm-hmm. sounded much better in my head. But, um, you know, you know, if you're talking about receptors that are bigger, for example, or protein yeah. aggregates, they are destroyed um, by different pathways. So either by the lysosome or autophagy. So there gotcha. are certain pathways for certain proteins. And so there are companies who are already um, investigating um, autosomal and, um, sorry, lysosomal and um, autophagy pathways. Um, I think in, in the, in the, in our article, we cover a couple of them, but they've raised both series, um, series B rounds. So Chasma Therapeutics focused mm-hmm. primarily in autophagy and PAC Therapeutics as well. And then, um, Lycia Therapeutics that also, uh, had a deal with Eli Lilly last year, focusing on autoimmune diseases. They're focusing mm-hmm. on lysosomal pathways to develop LITAX. Um, so pretty, um, you know, cool science and interesting work there. Um, and I think the other thing that still is, is, um, an area of investment for VCs, again, molecular clues. Um, and I'll just mm-hmm. quickly describe them here and why they're so, um, why they are of such high interest to both biopharma and VCs. So let me I'm guess like, very, very small bottles of Elmer's glue. <laughs> exactly. You got it. <laughs> That's okay, exactly what good. it is. <laughs> um, so unlike Protax, where you need that, if you remember the dumbbell, you need the linker and, you know, the things yeah. at the ends, glues don't need that. So it's they, it's just a molecule that just brings, it enhances the protein-protein interaction. It just brings the ligase just really close to the protein you want to destroy. So very small. I, you know, we, we're, the point of this podcast is not talk about the limitations of Protax, but if you think about the dumbbell, that's a big structure. How do you get in a yeah. cell with the glue? You're potentially avoiding all that problem, all those problems. And so, you know, the other thing is molecular glues are in clinic. They have been discovered yeah. um, through luck. So thalidomide and its derivatives, um, cell genes, lenalidomide, which is $12 billion yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Um, those are molecular glues and Interesting. They, yeah, they were found. So approved, I think when was approved 2005, 2013 or so, the mechanism of action was di- discovered that it recruits cerebellum, which is an E3 ligase, which then leads to degradation of transcription factors. So that kind of validated protax in a way. <laughs> um, anyway, so that, that modality and that particular modality is very interesting potentially because much smaller you can make it by bio, orally bioavailable not just in mice but also potentially in humans and yeah. it can be um it can be delivered easily okay makes so sense it's very interesting to both biopharma and vcs and we've seen a lot of deals uh for glues uh yeah. i think most recently last week mark and peroxygen gotcha well, I've been trying to avoid dumbbells my whole life as well, so I can uh, certainly <laughs> empathize with that approach. Um, so, a- a- anything else on the horizon that's sort of on the um, uh, on the radar of VC? Other other approaches or pathways yeah. that fall broadly under TPD? Yeah. So, I think we covered some, but one like if you think in terms of inflection points, I think you know obviously um, data readouts are going to be uh, important as as uh, some of the programs mature. But one thing that, uh, to my knowledge, that we haven't seen and maybe a key inflection point, if you look at um, all the assets in the, in the clinic, 
um, all the E3 ligases that have made it to the clinic have been either VHL or cerebellon. So mm -hmm. no um, tissue restriction. Other than that, we have not seen any other E3 ligase make it to the clinic. Um, and a lot of earlier bets that have been placed, Amphista Therapeutics is trying to expand that E3 ligase pool. So it'll be interesting to see if, if other E3 ligases are able to make it to the clinic. And then the other would be, um, you know, we've seen preclinical programs um, in autoimmune and CNS space, but nothing has really made it to the clinic yet. So any mm -hmm. CNS penetrant, whether it's a ProTac, LITAC, ATAC, ATTAC, any kind of TAC that can be CNS penetrant in humans, not mice, mm -hmm. um, I think that would be um, an interesting and potentially de-risking event, um, assuming it's safe. So those gotcha. programs, I would, if I, I personally on the lookout for those things. So uh, I, I know you said uh, the goal of this podcast in the article is to be sort of, uh, you know, waving the flag for ProTax, but maybe you could talk a little bit about from where you sit and some of the work you've done looking at the space and also some of the work we've done helping companies in the space. Where do, where do you see some of the challenges uh, from a business and, and strategy perspective for those considering the field? Um, they almost always start with the same question. Um, you know, what indication should we go after? What market? Um, and, you know, uh, what do the physicians think? What, are, what is the pair going to say? Um, and so the questions are pretty similar to any other drug or program we look at. It's not a pro-tax specific question per se. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a strategy question, but it's very much tied to commercial hurdles that a drug will likely face. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'm going to use Arvinus's lead program as an example. And, you know, I think they, ha they've, they've published some really interesting and uh, promising early data, but some things that they're all tackling with is because they're ahead in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a very, heavily pre-treated population. I think median was five therapies already. Um, very molecularly well-defined, specific mutations. Um, and uh, they today announced a deal with Foundation Medicine to develop mm -hmm. a companion diagnostic for it. Um, and what I'm trying to get at is that that's part of their strategy to ensure that physicians use it in the patient population because the trial is so well-defined um, uh, in terms of who gets the drug. And so a key thing we help our partners understand is, you know, based on the trial you're doing and the current therapies in play and the efficacy you have demonstrated to date, how is, um, how is a physician um, going to really use this medication? When are they going to mm -hmm. use it? Who are they going to prescribe it in? Yeah. Um, and then likewise, when we do pair interviews or speak to pairs, they're going to look at that, um, okay, this trial population, you're talking about these two mutations, is there a companion diagnostic? Is it part of the trial? If not, like how yeah. are we going to, you know, um, reimburse this and for the therapy too? Anti-hormonal therapies, like I said, have been approved for a while. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't seen any news on how they're going to benchmark the pricing, um, the Arbanes therapy, but I'm sure they're having those discussions already. Yeah. Um, um, uh, internally. So those are very important questions that at the end of the day, 
these, uh, I think a good way to sum it, sum it, um, that we've done internally is not in the game to develop pro-attack full compounds. You're still yeah. developing drugs. You're a drug company. Yeah. And maybe thinking about it, not only from a single indication perspective, but, you know, if you're advising a VC or a larger uh, consolidator in the field, looking at a company, uh, how would you look or develop a company yourself to try to differentiate yourself from a, a pipeline and, and, and breadth of opportunities perspective? No, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And obviously something that we have gotten um, from uh, clients as well. Um, I think a key thing for any developer in this space is really to be able to articulate, and this may not be surprising, uh, but we get it a lot, is to be able to articulate um, the business strategy for the portfolio. I think that's one main thing. So knowing that almost all the companies in the space, except a very few, are oncology, for example, and if you do plan to develop a target for oncology, how are you differentiating whether it's a target or indication? Um, you know, if it's the same target as other companies, what potential patient segment are you thinking of targeting it? Uh, what's the lead and what's the follow on, you know, and how does it fit together as a cohesive franchise? Um, it, other than it, from a portfolio perspective, like that's one key thing we do a lot of times where we advise companies, uh, whether it's oncology, autoimmune, or any other indication, how to line up indications um, in a way that that not only makes sense, uh, but also drive value for the overall program. As a company that's limited on funds, um, you want to be, for example, mindful of selecting an indication that has a favorable path to development so you can communicate, get some early data, communicate to investors um, that these are the inflection points you're interested in. Um, and then at the same time, you need to have some follow-on indications that maybe communicate um, larger market opportunities. Well, thanks, Mavra. I, I think that's about all the time we have for today for this episode. Can't wait to have you back. Congrats again on your publication. Thanks, Pete. It was great. And uh, I think I would love to come back. Well, thank you, uh, everyone, for, for listening to the Life Science Report. If you have questions about biopharma and med tech strategy, partnering, licensing, or more, head over to the podcast page on our website and submit it at www.bblsa.com slash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcasts. Your question may be a topic of an upcoming episode. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks again for listening.